I stood out on the front porch for about a half hour this morning, just standing there and drinking coffee, and saw a lot of our neighbors. They'd walk out into the yard and wave and smile. Everybody seemed like they were in a really good mood. And then we went down to vote, and we stood in line for a little bit over an hour and saw some people we knew, saw some other people that seemed like they were in a good mood and happy to see us. And they smiled and waved, and we waved back. And then we went to a local restaurant here in East Nashville to have a little bit of lunch afterwards. And ran into a few friends there, saw some other people, but people were waving and smiling and laughing. And we came back home, and it just felt like a really, really nice morning in East Nashville. But I got to looking, and I realized that I went all over town and spent the entire morning in public with my fly unzipped. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. This is a personal journal. It's a bit of an experiment. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show is founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, I have my cat in my lap. This is Frankie. Maybe you can hear Frankie purring in the background. I don't know. Why don't you purr for him, Frankie? I'm not sure if Frankie's coming through or not. He's a little bit shy. But anyway, my guest this week is Kim Ritchie. Kim is a two-time Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter living right here in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, she's written songs that have been recorded by people like Trisha Yearwood and James Morrison. She's written two number ones and four top tens. You can find out everything you need to know about Kim at KimRitchie.com. She came over to the house and was visiting with Amy and I, and I talked her into sitting down for a little bit of a recorded chat, and uh, she was nice enough to go along with it. So here it is, right from my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, Kim Ritchie. I was in the Blue Water office one time, and uh, I was just hanging around there, and Jim Lauderdale were out there as well. And someone was in there, like someone from Switzerland was in there and was wanting Jim Lauderdale to play a show I think, and uh, yeah, it was Lauderdale, and he couldn't do it, so they said, well, do you want to play a show in Switzerland? It was with Kevin Welch, and I said, you know, it's like, well, yeah, you know, I've never been to Switzerland. I'm in, and you know, I, I didn't care how much they were going to pay me. It was just like a free trip to Switzerland. That sounded great, so anyway, I was talking to my, it was at a theater. It was supposed to be really nice. I think it was in, in Geneva, and so the uh, my manager at the time, I said, hey, I've got this show, you know, in Switzerland, and they can do all these other side gigs, they called them. And so he said, well, we'll, 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 we'll decide on about the side gigs later and see, you know, see what's going on. So anyway, he thought, you know, uh, this seems kind of shaky to me. Just do one, you know, and, and see what happens. So I said, okay. So I had my big, nice theater gig, 
And then um, we were taking we were taking the train to the side gig, and and I and I knew where you know I had the name of a town, but that was it, and the promoter. And no one, I didn't know anything like where was I playing, how long, what kind of place was it, you know. And so we're taking the train up up the mountains to this ski resort, and and I had a friend with me that had come over from London and met me there, so he was with me, and then this uh, like uh, other Swiss guy that was promoter of the big show. He said, "Well, I'll come along," you know. So he came along. So we ride up there, and we get there, and this guy met us at the train station. And uh, he said, you know, welcome. We're excited to have you here and everything. And, and uh, would you uh, would you like to see where you're playing tonight? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> so we get in his car. He had a Jeep, I remember, for some reason. So we get in his Jeep and we drive down and uh, we pull up in front of this place. And it had a big banner across the front of it. It looked like It looked like this place that like something they'd airlifted out of a movie set from a Western. <laughs> and so, and it even had the, um, you know, the bars where you tie up your horses and the troughs and yeah. everything. Oh, they had the whole deal. And then across the front was a big banner and it said, welcome to the grand opening of the authentic Western American saloon. <laughs> and that was where I was playing. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I said, I said, you know, I just thought I'm going down so hard, and and we, you know, they said, "Do you want to go to back? We'll take you back to the hotel, and you can change, and you know, and come down, and everything." And we're going back to the hotel, and I just said, "This is really bad. This is bad." You know, <laughs> so I just kept going. This is gonna be so bad. And we get down, change, and you know, had something to eat, and came back for the gig, and we got there, and we turns out we were the only ones not dressed as a cowboy or an Indian. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And, and how about this? And in, 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 uh, to top it all off, it was all you could drink for free night. Oh God. So, and it was just me, it was just me playing and, and they didn't have a sound system. There was like a little kind of home studio sound thing in a box there. And so we had to set that up in a corner and it was just me playing for all these kind of really seriously drunk out of their minds, dressed up people. And I played one set. Nobody was listening. It was all screaming and everything. And I went, you know, took a break and the promoter was there. And I said, you know, I, I just, I, it's so funny. I don't know if it's Midwest or what, but like I signed on, you know, a, a normal <laughs> thinking person would have said, you know, F this, I'm out of here, you know. Yeah. But I was like, well, I said I'd do it, you Gotta know. And, the job. You know, yeah, yeah, complete, you know, do the best I can. So I said, "Can I please leave? You know, you don't have to pay me. I just, I just don't want to be here anymore." <laughs> Even though you came all the yeah, way to Switzerland, yeah, I don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, and he kept going, "No, they love you. They love you." So, uh, so I just thought this is really awful. And so I went the next, the second set. I, I just thought of the most country song that was on my first record, and I played it like without stopping just like in a big loop i played it about six times just in a row i just kept starting over <laughs> when I hit the end. and then i said thank you very much good night and, and i left <laughs> did so, you get a good ovation or anything i don't even think they knew i left yeah. so it was really it was really really terrible probably pretty much how you would think it would be it's like a blind date and uh it's i i think some people are 
better at it than I am. Because I, um, yeah, some people are better than me. Because I don't like to write with different people every day. It's not, you never kind of get to know somebody. I'd rather go and have a coffee or a drink or something and kind of talk and get to know somebody Yeah. before just, you know, sitting down and saying, well, you know, tell me something really personal about yourself and we'll write a song about it, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh, so I don't do it so much. I did it more when I was, when I first moved here, like in, in first, uh, I got, was uh, signed to Blue Water Music, a uh, really great publisher, but when I first started out, you know, I would just get sent to all these different places and people, you know, to write. And, and sometimes it was good and you'll meet somebody, you know, every once in a while there'd be something where um, I thought it would be good if you could have some sort of self-activated beeper that you'd have to go, oh, hang on, I have to take this. And <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go. It's an emergency, you know. So, um, but yeah, today was great, though. I had a good time today, and I really liked the song that we wrote, too. It seems like it would be a really good way to just make friends if you're new yeah. to the town. Yeah. How, how did you end up moving to Nashville? Where'd you come from? Well, I came here from Bellingham, Washington uh, with, uh, with my boyfriend, and the deal was is he was going to graduate school in Bellingham while I worked and then when he got his degree then it was my turn to decide where we were going to go and we'd go someplace where I wanted to go for whatever it was I wanted to do because I was working in restaurants and stuff okay. at the time there and uh and I came here because Bill Lloyd is a really close friend of mine from college we were in a band together and he was in a band uh with Radney Foster Foster and Lloyd real pretty successful yeah. country band and um they'd just been up in my area, like I think they played in Seattle or something, and I rode to a couple shows on the bus with them and sold T-shirts a couple nights for them. And Bill kept going, "Move to Nashville, come to Nashville, come to Nashville." And uh, when I'm when I decided I wanted to come here, the stuff that was was just kind of breaking out in Nashville was uh, Steve Earle and Katie Lang, and I think Steve Earle calls it the great credibility scare or something <laughs> like that. And, and so, and I thought, I, you know, I, it was it was 88, you know, 80s, and I thought, no, I like this, I like this music a lot, yeah. you know, and uh, so, so I just said, well, you know, kind of willy-nilly, let's go to Nashville, and uh, we had a big old truck, and, you know, we loaded everything into the Ford and drove here. And uh, I, I didn't think anything would come of it, really, because we we just lived, li you know, lived in Colorado for a couple of years, just kind of been moving all around since college. And uh, and then I ended up, you know, getting a publishing deal and then having a record deal and making records. How long were you here before that stuff started happening? Well, I was here, I think maybe I got a publishing deal after a couple of years. But, I mean, it's really, it's... You just don't know what you're supposed to do. It's not like, you know, if you if I wanted to, you know, I could work in a restaurant. So I look through the through the paper and you find a restaurant that needs somebody and then you put in an application and you have an interview and you ha get the job or you don't. And it's not that way for songwriting or, you know, making records or anything like that. And and you couldn't, you know, this was like really early 90s, so people weren't making their own records in their house and stuff like that then. 
And uh, so anyway, I didn't really know what I was supposed to do. So I avoided it the first couple of years I was here by just working as many weight shifts as I could. <laughs> and, and then um, then I played a show, a couple shows and, and got a publishing deal. And and then I, I always thought of myself as a singer more than a writer. I only wrote so I'd have stuff to sing. And uh, I was, um, well, I was playing with some different people and, you know, and, and, People like the publishing other producer guys and the record labels, they really liked my songs and they would come and get, this is back in the day, they'd get a cassette of my songs, you know, my demo, so they could listen to them in the car because they liked them. But they wouldn't cut any of my songs or sign me because I was too weird. They were just fans. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really good and I like it, but that doesn't mean anybody else is going to like it. I guess that's the, that was their thought process. And um, But so I was, you know, playing and... And uh, playing with some different friends around town, and we—I was even going to be in a Grateful Dead cover band at one point, you know. So, so I was just kind of <laughs> doing all kinds of stuff. And we played one night. We played at uh, Tolson Porter, and uh, and it was just me and two other guys. And we played, and we were just cutting up. I don't know what you know. Sometimes when you do a show, you're just in kind of one of those moods where. I don't know, it's like you're like when you're at a slumber party or something and you're sleep deprived and everything's kind of funny and you're just, you know, kind of acting kind of wacky. So I don't know what my deal was up on stage, but I was cracking jokes and just, you know, and blah, and talking up a storm. And we finished the show and it was really fun and I didn't think anything of it. And then this guy came up to the stage. I was packing all my stuff up and uh, this guy came up to the bottom of the stage. And I remember he had like just a white shirt on and some jeans and loafers or something. He said, I really like your um really like your your stuff. And I said, Oh thanks. And I said, ignore him and keep packing all my stuff up. And he says, No, you know, you are really good. And I said, Well, you know, thanks a lot. You know, what's your name? And he said, told me his name and I we shook hands and everything. And and I said, Well, you know, what do you do? You know, and he said, Well, he says, I'm I'm uh I'm over at Mercury Records. And I said, Oh, I said, How do you like it over there? And he said, well, I like it, you know, I like it just fine. And I said, well, okay, it's, it's nice talking to you. I got to get my stuff off the stage, so, you know, see you later. So packed up. So that turned out, I found out later he was the president of, <laughs> of Mercury. <laughs> it was Luke Lewis. So, yeah, so then I went and found all this out, and I told my publisher, and she was like, whoa, we need to go and see them, you know, if they like your, if the president likes your stuff. Yeah. So he made an appointment, and we sat in the office, and – uh and just talked mostly. I remember I only played him two songs. And we were talking about bands that we liked and all of this stuff. And and I remember and Luke, you know, at one point he said, well, how old are you? Because we had a lot of the same bands in common. And, and I remember I said, uh, I was 37. And he just went, you know, cussed, said a few cuss words. And, and, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, 37. And so that's way too old, really, to be in those days or now, especially to like getting signed any kind of major record deal. But, you know, a few months, I guess, afterwards, I heard from them and they said, you want to make a record? I said, yeah. It, it was pretty good. And they always were, they always gave me plenty of rope, you know, I could, because they said, well, you know, we'd like you to maybe work with these people. And, and, and I was old enough, too, to where I just thought, well, I'm not going to do anything I don't really want to do. And I said, well, I, I want to make a record with Richard Bennett, you know, and then and I said, that's what I want to do. And they said, well, okay, you can make a record with Richard Bennett. So I said, okay. So 
then Richard and I went through all my songs and they went through my songs and they said something about, you know, like gave us lists. They said, well, here are the songs that we want you to do. And I showed them to Richard and Richard looked at the list and he just said, okay. He goes, well, that's cool. You know, some of their songs are on our list. So that's great. So we did, we did our list and, uh, <laughs> And they were they were so they were so nice to me. They were I was like kind of it wasn't a real situation, you know, because I'd never even had a record deal. So here I have these really nice people that are giving me, you know, letting me make whatever kind of record I want to with whoever. Like they never even came to the studio while we were recording. And I really? said, yeah. And I said, I, and we had a joke. We kept going. Do you think they're no? They know we're in here. <laughs> And, uh, and and Richard said, he says, I don't know, you know, we're talking about, we were joking too about how, he said, maybe they don't, because I've just been sending all the bills, you know, to Billy Ray Cyrus's people, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, because he was really, you know, was all that stuff was going on at the time. So we'd laugh about that. And then I started getting nervous. And so I called him and I said, you know, are you even remotely interested in what we're doing over here? And and uh, they said, yeah, they said, we, but we were just waiting for you to call and invite us over. Wow. I know. It's not real, is it? Wow. Does that exist anymore? I don't know. I can't tell you about it anymore, but I never ran into it, you know, after, after that. And they were, they were just, you know, it was really great. It was a great time because, I mean, the label had loads of money because they had Billy Ray Cyrus and Shania Twain. So they had the money to kind of take a gamble on things that weren't like that. So it was pretty, I was pretty lucky. He did. She owned a record store in uh, McConnellsville, Ohio. That's where my parents were from. And uh, it was just in a, it was pretty cool. I didn't realize how cool it was because she was my great aunt and we were little kids. And, you know, if she was maybe gosh, maybe in her 50s or something like that, you know, or 60s to a really little kid, you know, it just seemed ancient. Yeah. And she had a record store, so I didn't realize how cool she was. She had this record store, and it was just uh, like in the bottom floor of an old house. Like you just kind of walk in the front door, and, and you know, like in your parlor over there, there, was the four, there were the 45s, and in here was, you know, these were the albums and everything. And we could pick, um, we could pick whatever as many 45s as we wanted to. Oh, we could never have any albums for some reason. And, and, uh, and, and I think, I mean, that's all, that's how I, I never bought an album until I was like senior year in high school. Cause I always, I always just picked songs. So she was giving you these yeah. for free. Yeah. And we, and we just listened to, I remember, <laughs> I remember the kind of moment that I discovered that I had twice as many records as I thought I had because I'd flip them over, you know, then <laughs> discovered the B-sides. I was like, I think I like the B-sides better than the E-sides. <laughs> so, so she was, she was really great. She bought me, um, I was in the hospital and I was in like, I was in fourth grade or something like that. And she came over to visit and bought me the first album that I ever owned was Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. You know, so it's like Willie Bully. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're Little Red Riding Hood. And all. <laughs> <laughs> I still love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, so she, so it was, it was pretty cool. Do you remember what the first album when you said you bought your own album with your own money? What that might have been? Well, the first, the first thing I really because you know a lot. It's that thing too where you have friends who have certain albums and stuff, so you don't buy them because you're listening to them over at their house and stuff like that, but. The first, the first thing I remember 
buy-in. And then it just set me um, down the singer-songwriter kind of road was uh, I was in this band. Uh, there were three of us, and we played. Well, I was a senior in high school, and we played at this restaurant. It's called Steak and Ale. It was kind of like medieval steakhouse kind of we had sort of chain. In you those? <laughs> we had I think those. it's the Midwest kind of thing. But we were the we were the house band, and we played every night except Monday. And we just got the gig on a fluke because we we tried out as a joke and we learned three songs so that's only all the songs we knew and we got there and they said you know uh well what do you want us to do and he said well i don't know play some songs well, how many songs do you want us to play and he goes well three songs so he said okay so we played our three songs and then he said you know okay that's great you got the job and we didn't know any more songs so we we had, <laughs> or have any equipment you know we had nothing so anyway so we played, we, we were we were playing for the Steak and Ale Band. We were just trying to learn as many songs as we could, you know, covers. And um, I, my friend that was the guy that was a guitar player in the band, he um, taught me the Joni Mitchell song uh, for free. And, and I just thought, I just love this so much. I, the lyrics killed me. And I just thought, this is absolutely amazing. So... So the first Joni Mitchell record I bought was the double album Miles for Isles. So Miles and Miles of Isles. And so I bought I bought that and then, you know, and just loved every single song. Then I went back and bought all the other albums. And then I bought all the songbooks and then, you know, I was I was lost from there on. I was deep into the into Joni Mitchell. Did your friends did you guys make mixtapes and give them to each other? We did, didn't make mixtapes so much. We'd kind of be hanging around, listening to you know, listening to records. Did you have parties where everyone would just simply sit around and listen to a record? Yeah, and we and we also, I mean, the radio was pretty darn good back then too. It wasn't like um, music wasn't as pigeonholed, yeah. I think, as it is now. So you know, you'd have the the station on, and and I think, I mean, I could have. I could I could have I could be wrong, but I think that was too when uh, DJs were playing what they wanted to play, you yeah. know. And the music was it was a local guy playing music that the people that lived around there wanted to hear. It wasn't like some guy living, you know, in a big city a long way away is programming the stations for like you know twelve states or something like that. So it was pretty regional, and um, and also it was. There were there were a couple college stations and they they play a lot of album cuts you know it wasn't it wasn't all top forty kind of stuff yeah so you could you could do pretty well just listening to the radio and and Dayton you know I was a kid I was in the suburbs so we were in the cars a lot you know driving around hanging out in parking lots and that kind of thing. Well, I'm told that my father, uh, he sang in a barber, barbershop quartet and played double bass. And my mom can sing, and she, and she would sing with the radio and records and stuff. But she never would sing kind of in front of when she thought anybody could hear her too much. But, you know, <laughs> she she has a really beautiful voice. And But her records were, they were records that, that my mom had or were mostly the records I remember growing up were loads of musicals, which I still love those old musicals like West Side Story and and all that. Yeah. And uh, musicals, and then 
I took dancing classes and I was in uh, mostly my my main my main thing was tap dancing. Like I can still tap dance. I tap danced on a Todd Snyder record. <laughs> <laughs> I even had I did, and Ray Kennedy put me through the ringer. He he produced a record, but he's the guy. He made me tap on like five different surfaces so he could get the right sound. And I was wore out by the time I you know came to do it. But so we took dance classes. So I remember we had musicals, and then the other one other thing I remember from my childhood is. Uh, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, because it seemed like that during that time period, you know, that was that was the the thing. That was what we all did our little, you know, recitals, dances to. I have a degree in environmental education, so I was working at a nature center at a raptor rehab facility in Pueblo. Wow. That was really cool. And uh, so I was doing that, and... and uh, Did they just have, uh, like, injured owls? Yeah, that they would bring owls in or and- hawks. And we had it, the, the facility where, uh, well, we had, there was an old, it was an old uh, prison farm. And then down by the river, there was the nature center, like, you know, where people would go through and all that. But up on top was, uh, there was this old, it was the hog barn, and they'd converted it. And one side of it, like if you were came in the front and were, was, were looking down the, uh, the barn, the length of the barn, on the left-hand side, were all, they turned the stalls into places where the birds could be kept or... And then on down at the very bottom were was the food, which involved mice and rats. So, you know, we grew our own food, right? So so that was the left hand side. And the interns, we were in the left we were in the right hand side. So we were all in the same barn. And I remember it was so it was in Colorado, it was so freaking cold in there that that I would sleep in, you know, all my warmest clothes, plus my parka, plus my mittens, plus a hat in a sleeping bag. <laughs> And it was so it was just so freezing, and we didn't have any money either and uh uh because it was just an internship kind of thing but it was it was really a, a cool job because uh you know you 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 don't get to see those birds like really up close like that like um the kestrels are beautiful, I think people used to call them chicken hawks, they're the little guys, yeah, and they're gorgeous, just the different colors of them, and the owls and i I learned a lot about the birds and um like we would keep like we had an owl that lived there with us because people would um you know find the baby birds and they would try to you know keep it alive and nurse it back to health and they'd fed this guy hamburger which doesn't seem you know that far off but but it was really not what the owl needed and he um developed some kind of like nerve disorder because he that he was just fed hamburger and kind of nothing else so he we couldn't really release him so um he we used him to teach kids and stuff about birds because he you know he could hold him and he could they could see him up close would they take him to classrooms and like in the schools the schools came to us okay this is so far from what you asked me isn't it no that's great what a great field trip get to go see you know birds oh yeah yeah, no, I worked at a nature center in Ohio as well. Um, that was really great, but because I, I did that, that's what my degree was supposed, to, you know, was in. And mm-hmm. I, and in Colorado, I worked at a, I worked at a ran a nature center finally in Vail, Colorado. Um, 
But then after that, I was cooking. So I, I've had some pretty good jobs. Well, what was the bad jobs? The bad jobs? Well, the the worst job was the worst job was that uh, uh, just out of college. It was my first job, um, like first proper job with what I was kind of meant to be doing. And uh, there was a drug and alcohol rehabs group home that was kind of out of town. And they had a I just graduated from college and I wanted to stay in town. It was in Athens, Ohio. And they had a that a uh you know a, an advertisement for recreation director. And I thought, well, I could, you know, I could do that maybe. And so I went and I didn't get the job, but they hired me as the assistant because they hired this other guy as the director. So they paid me like a wee little bit of money because I was only the assistant. And then before the place opened, the director said, mm, you know. This doesn't seem like a very good idea to me. So he quit. So now I'm the director. <laughs> so I went to the, you know, with no experience and and I'm, you know, 22. And and the guys I'm working with are 18. That's not that big of a difference. And yeah. so so anyway, I go to the to the people before it opened. I said, well, I'm the director. So now I get paid the director fee, right? And then, and then I should have known something was, it was all going to go terribly wrong where they gave me this story about, well, no, actually, see, there is no director position because he quit. So you are the assistant director. <laughs> so you would you would you would still make the same money. So I thought, well, okay, I want to stay in the town, so I'll be the assistant director, director. And uh, but it was it was just really hard because you know you're so idealistic and everything, and you just want to help all these guys, and they're they're playing you big time and. Uh, and they and and I had no budget, so I was buying stuff with my own money, you know, for them to have something to do. Yeah. And and it was just it was really hard. It was a, it was a hard job. It was really stressful. Were these guys uh, addicted to to drugs, or what, what was the what were they yeah, in there for? Yeah, they were they were drug and alcohol. Um, they'd been in drug and alcohol programs, and they'd also been institutionalized. That was a thing. Like they'd all been in kid jail. And this was kind of like their last shot, you know. And so it was really kind of pretty hardcore group of guys, which – and I'd be there sometimes on my own with them. So – and I remember one time, like, I don't, we'd only been there for maybe a couple weeks, and it was me and uh, a counselor uh, that was there, and she was just this wee tiny woman. She she wasn't that much older than me, and it was just the two of us. And the, and it's way out in the middle of the country, this home. And we heard something, and I ran outside because I heard some glass breaking or something. And I ran outside and heard something on the roof, and I looked up, and I could see a few of them kind of running off in the distance. And then there were a couple up on the roof right there. And I said, I said, hey, what's going on, guys? And they said, oh. Some some of the guys are trying to escape, and we tried to stop them. And I said, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. You know, go on back in, and we'll take care of it." So, anyway, um, you know, we there some were gone, so we had to call a sheriff, you know, and fill out all this stuff. So we're down filling out all this paperwork and everything. And then one of the guys comes down, and there was this one guy that was massive. He was really tall and really scary. And uh, Kidder, that's what they called him. And and this guy comes down the stairs and he said, he said, uh, he looked like something, you know, one of the Sons of Anarchy guy from the from the series. And uh, uh, comes down the stairs and he said, uh, the guy said, 
you know, Kidder's upstairs and he's going to kill himself. He's trying to he's trying to kill himself. Ooh. And so, you know, and I'm thinking, well, that doesn't really fall under recreation. So <laughs> this isn't this isn't my deal. <laughs> and I'm only the assistant director of recreation as it is. And so the the counselor, you know, woman, she looked at me and she said, you know, you have to, you have to come up there with me. And I said, okay, I'll come up there with you. And I've never been so scared in my life. I mean, we walked up there and we looked in the we walk up the stairs and look into the bedroom where this guy was and uh he was standing there and like I said he's just really big guy and he just had like blue jeans on and like a big motorcycle belt uh belt and boots and no shirt on at all and kind of long stringy hair and he has this great big piece of glass that I guess had come from the uh window and was holding it up in front of him like he was going to stab himself with Ooh. it yeah and so um, this is a horrible story, isn't it? But no. this was my job. So so anyway, uh, he, the um, the girl, you know, said, okay, I'll talk to him, but you can't leave. And I said, okay, so I, I'll stand right outside the door. So I stood right outside the door where he couldn't see me. But, I mean, I was so scared that I couldn't hardly stand up. I had to lean against the wall because my, le- my whole body was just shaking, shaking, yeah. shaking. So, anyway, he, he didn't end up doing anything, and the cops came. And, but it was just all. It was like one thing after another was really horrible. And I, I was so naive. I just wanted to help all of them and, and, you know, and just like, you know, they're all good kids. And yeah. it was just, they, they really, they really played me. <laughs> I was so naive. <laughs> I was so from Ohio. <laughs> I saw a Buckeye coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That was easy. That wasn't so bad. <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Kim for coming on over and visiting us in our living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to find out more about Kim, just go to KimRitchie.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You could buy a photograph. You could uh, download any record I've ever made, and you could pick up one of Amy's records while you're there. Anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It's a big deal if you leave a comment there. It really, really helps us move up into the search rankings and helps more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show or you enjoy my music or you enjoy Amy's music, Please take the time to tell somebody and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.